Alright everybody, we're going to get going. I know a lot of people are probably going to be missing today, given that uh, anybody on the Ireland trip or stuck, stuck in Dublin, other people got trips and stuff like that. Yeah, I know. They're, they're, stuck, wow. they're stuck forever. Just, they love you so much, they just didn't want to no, no, we had, they had an uh, airplane that had some uh, technical difficulties, and so they canceled the flight. So they can't get back till tomorrow night. So. <laughs> so everybody that was like rushing back to do a test or an exam because of the storm two weeks ago, yeah, it's nice to do that. So you're here. I'm excited to have you back. You might do anything particularly fun over the break. Yes. I went skiing at Breckenridge. Yes. Awesome. You look like you got a little like snow sun. Cool. Somebody else? Yeah. What are you doing, Isaac? What's your really? Nice. Oh, yeah, you were on that shirt team, weren't you? Awesome. Yeah, you guys have a good time? Yeah, it was really cool. It was really good to help out uh, Duncan and, and Corey. Yeah. Good. It was a ton of fun, and the Texas team was really cool to hang out with, too. I heard that. I heard you guys had a good time together. Yeah. Were they from? They were from Austin? Uh, the other team? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. They're all really excited to um, see snow. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone else is moaning and they're like, yeah. yeah. Cool. We took a road trip to Utah and Arizona. That's right. Yeah. You guys see like uh, arches or? Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I'm glad you guys are back. And ready or not, school is starting back tomorrow morning. Bright and early, but we are here. And we're gonna have a good time. So, um, our rise and pray for us for our time together. Yeah, loud and proud. God, I thank you for this day um, for those of us that are here, Father. That you would just speak to us, God. That we would hear what um, Nate has prepared for us, Father. Um, just got just open our ears to hear and uh, just prepare us for the, the rest of the semester here, God. That we could just glorify you in it and uh, continue that motivation. Your name, amen. Amen. So something that is a big topic in the business world. Anybody business majors over here? Woo! I got a couple. A big topic in the business world, or at least in the management world right now, is the conversation, what makes a healthy team? And particularly in Chi Alpha, we also have this conversation regularly going on on a national level, having conversations about what makes a healthy team. When I, when I ran out the first night that we had class, I was running to the airport, did an all-nighter. It was essentially to get to a conference that I was helping out with where we were talking through. That was one of the big topics was, what does it look like to have a healthy pioneering team in Alpha? So this, this conversation, whether it's international business or ministry, is a major conversation because we find that uh, the way that a group of people, community, interacts is, is one of the most clear indications of, of how healthy they're going to be. And when you join a, a resource group maybe next year, if you're going to do that, or if you're going to just be in the marketplace someday, how you interact in that world, how you interact in a team is, is vital, it's crucial. They actually found, kind of interesting side notes, they actually found, they did a study where they were looking at all of these tech firms thinking these are a great 
uh, kind of lab experiments to see like what causes a tech company, you know, kind of innovative and edgy and, and has a very short shelf life in the world that we live in right now, unless you are, you know, the next Mark Zuckerberg or something like that. And so they were like, what makes some of these companies go all the way, Fortune 500, whatever it is, and what makes so many of them crash and burn? And they were trying to look at what were the key indicators to whether or not a company would survive. And the one that everybody would kind of default to, the one that everybody kind of thought, was the all-star team. You know, if you have great coders and great management and great, you know, strategic plan and blah, 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 blah. If you had an all-star team of staff, then you would you'd be more likely to make it all the way. They found that actually wasn't a great indicator. Uh, there wasn't a great cause and effect to that. What did have a great cause and effect correlation when they were doing the research was how much the people working together liked each other. If they actually, they could be B-rated coders and whatever, but if they actually enjoyed being together, if they actually liked each other, they were far more likely to succeed in the business world. And I think that is, is an indication of this kingdom principle that is everything in life revolves around relationship. That's, that we have a relational God. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, me just mentioning that prayer in John is something that I just constantly am going back to. When Jesus says, may they be one as we are one, may they be in us as I am in you. Basically saying, may they join into this fellowship, into this interaction that is so intertwined, so interconnected that it's like the Trinity. Because in the Trinity, we see that we have a God who is intrinsically relational and is inviting us into relationship with him. And we are inviting others into that same relationship. And so, with that way of thinking, the more that the world begins to realize how important relationships are, they found that's the best indication of whether you're going to be happy in life, whether you're going to be successful in life, whether you're going to be healthy in life. All these things are an indication based on simply that. I'm actually reading a book right now. I'm going to nerd out for just a half a second. But there's this book called uh, by Nathan Wood called The Secret of the Universe. And... If you ever have a philosophy class or anything, you may or may not get to this, but but there's this question, where does morality come from? What is the basis of morality, right? And, and oftentimes, people who do not believe in God will argue that God is not a good uh, basis of morality either. Because what they'll say is, A, either God created the universe arbitrarily, subjectively, to have love is good and hate is evil, and it's subjective. In that case, it's really not an absolute. It's simply a subjective. He just pushed it up to his level. Or it is, or love is this absolute reality within creation. And if that's the case, then really love is the thing that we should be worshiping, that God is simply a policeman to the actual laws of the universe, simply acting this out. And so they'll say that God doesn't answer it. However, we would say... And actually, this is the counter-argument that, that really wins the day if you listen to anybody that's more, far more eloquent and far more deep than I am. Listen to William Lloyd Craig, who's one of those guys, uh, Robbie Zacharias. But, but they basically will say, it's not A or B, it's actually C, it's the, his nature. So the closer we get to his nature, the closer we're getting to the source of reality, the closer we're getting to reality itself, which is what morality is based on. What is reality? What is morality? But Nathan Wood in this book is, is fascinating. He's actually trying to go a step further and actually say not only is morality based on the nature of God, but that the very ch- 
chair that you're sitting in, the very lights that are shining on us, the very essence of time and space and matter all actually have triune relationships within them that actually creation itself is expressing something of a triune God. And so I think that's just really fascinating. But I'm really diverging here. Um, what were we talking about? Okay, go come back. Um, but the point being that we have this God who is himself relational. And the closer we get into understanding how to work in relationship, the closer we get to reality and the closer we get to actually living out the way God intended we as the kingdom of God to be leading the way in uh, this world as we model and express things like honor and love and community and unity within our fellowship. And so one of the things that I want to talk about is just this idea of social intelligence, kind of a buzzword these days, um, and latent influence, which I'll get to in a little bit. But when you are a small group leader uh, or when you are a minister to your world, it is important to recognize this idea of, of social intelligence. That more or less, small group leaders all are kind of doing the same thing, but we often see different impacts small group leaders have. And, and a couple other reasons. One is how well they do at um, drawing people to meaningful relationships with themselves. That is one of the indications of how well a small group leader is going to do and how well can they draw people to meaningful relationships with God. And so there's some, and the sweet spot is when you start to kind of do both of these really well. You know, I have, I've had students that have been really good at building friendships, meaning they're really good at building this connection with someone, this relationship, even in deep, meaningful, life-giving type relationships, but they never could cross it over into actually meaningful, challenging, encouraging, and walking with them through meaningful uh, growth in their faith journey, wherever they were at. And I've had people do the very opposite. They could challenge and encourage and speak you know, Greek or Hebrew or whatever, I don't know, and, and really lead and teach, but they, they were not good at building deep relationships. And so small group leaders, when, you, when we're talking, your life is what we're trying to get small groups to be about, <coughs> that the people around your life that you are pouring into. Um, it's important to have both of these. Today we're primarily focusing on one key attribute of having a meaningful relationship with you and how can you help foster that with people in your life. So I'm going to show a little clip. You might have seen this one before. It kind of was a popularized YouTube thing. Mostly because he said why millennials suck and then it wasn't our fault. So we... We kind of thought that was fun. Um, however, to do that, my computer has to work. Let's do. Here we go. Okay. Like Stephen previous generations, right? Through no fault of their own. Through no fault of their own, right? They were dealt a bad hand, right? Now let's add in technology. We know that engagement with social media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. That's why when you get a text, 
feels good. Right? So you know, we've all had it where you're feeling a little bit down or feeling a little bit lonely, and so you send out 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 hi. Because <laughs> it feels good when you get a response, right? Right? It's why we count the likes, it's why we go back 10 times to see if, and if it's going, if our, my Instagram is growing slower, I, 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 did I do something wrong, do they not like me anymore, right? The, the trauma for young kids to be unfriended, right? Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it, it's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, and when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive. Right? We have age restrictions on smoking, gambling, and uh, alcohol, and we have no age restrictions on social media and cell phones, which is the equivalent of opening up the liquor cabinet and saying to our teenagers, hey, by the way, this adolescence thing, if it gets you down. <laughs> but that's basically what's happening. That's basically what's happening, right? That's basically what happened. You have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing, to chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. Why is this important? Almost every alcoholic discovered alcohol when they were teenagers. When we're very, very young, the only approval we need is the approval of our parents. And as we go through adolescence, we make this transition where we now need the approval of our peers. Very frustrating for our parents, very important for us, and allows us to acculturate outside of our immediate families into the broader tribe. Right? It's a highly, highly stressful and anxious period of our lives, and we're supposed to learn to rely on our friends. Some people, quite by accident, discover alcohol and numbing effects of dopamine to help them cope with the stresses and anxieties of adolescence. Unfortunately, that becomes hardwired in their brains, and for the rest of their lives, when they suffer significant stress, they will not turn to a person, they will turn to the bottle. Social stress, financial stress, career stress, that's pretty much the primary reasons why an alcoholic drinks. Right? What's happening is because we're allow allowing unfettered access to these dopamine-producing devices and media, basically it's becoming hardwired. And what we're seeing is as they grow older, they, too many kids don't know how to form deep, meaningful relationships. Their words, not mine. They will admit that many of their friendships are superficial. They will admit that their friends, that they don't count on their friends, they don't rely on their friends, they have fun with their friends, but they also know that their friends will cancel off them if something better comes along. Deep meaningful relationships are not there because they never practice the skill set, and worse, they don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with stress. So when significant stress starts to show up in their lives, they're not turning to a person, they're turning to a device, they're turning to social media, they're turning to these things which offer temporary relief. We know, the science is clear, we know that people who spend more time on Facebook suffer higher rates of depression than people who spend less time on Facebook. Right? These things balance. Alcohol is not bad, too much alcohol is bad. Gambling is fun. Too much gambling is dangerous. Right? There's nothing wrong with social media and cell phones. It's the imbalance. Right? If you're sitting at dinner with your friends and you're texting somebody who's not there, that's a problem. That's an addiction. If you're sitting in a meeting with people you're supposed to be listening to and speaking and you put your phone on the table, face up or face down, I don't care, that sends a subconscious message to the room that you're, not just, you're just not that important to me right now. Right? That's what happens. And the fact that you cannot put it away is because you are addicted. Right? If you wake up and you check your phone before you say good morning to your girlfriend, boyfriend, or spouse, you have an addiction. And like all addiction, in time, it'll destroy relationships, it'll cost time, and it'll cost money, and it'll make your life worse. Right? So you have a generation growing up with lower self-esteem that doesn't have the coping mechanisms to deal with stress. 
now you add in the sense of impatience. Right? They've grown up in a world of instant gratification. You want to buy something, you go on Amazon, it arrives the next day. You want to watch a movie, log on and watch a movie. You don't check movie times. You want to watch a TV show, binge. You don't even have to wait week to week to week. Right? I know people who skip seasons just so they can binge at the end of the season. Right? Instant gratification. You want to go on a date, you don't even have to learn how to be like, <laughs> you don't even have to learn to practice that skill. You don't have to be the uncomfortable one who says, says yes when you mean no and says no when you mean no and yes when you You don't have to swipe right. Bang, I'm a stud. Right? You don't have to learn the social coping mechanisms. Right? Everything you want, you can have instantaneously. Everything you want, instant gratification. Except job satisfaction and strength of relationships, there ain't no app for that. They are slow, meandering, uncomfortable, messy processes. And so I keep meeting these wonderful, fantastic, idealistic, hardworking, smart kids that just graduated. All right. So the point of that wasn't to dog technology, but it is to kind of bring up this, this point that technology has been one indicator of, of a challenge within our world today, and that is simply that what they have found is generally within this generation um, that there is higher stress uh, despite not necessarily finding external factors that are any more stressful, uh, but higher stress and harder time to deal with resilience uh, and coping because of really, in part, the deep relational chasm within our world. Uh, there's a guy named Dick Foth who wrote a book here a few years ago called Known, and it's his whole kind of treatise on what it means to have deep, meaningful relationships in your life. He started the book by actually um, interviewing one of our small group leaders back in the day. Did anybody ever get to Mikey Stewart in their family tree in here? Did you? Mikey Stewart? Somebody, I forgot his name, but he said he was going to give me the name. Okay. I can give you the number if you need to finish that up, but that's fine. Um, so your, your part of the Kyle tree came from him. Mikey Stewart basically is, was one of the most social guys I ever met on campus, but when Dick Foth asked him, said, what was one word to define your generation? He said, overwhelmed. And Dick Foth is like a 70-year-old guy who's like, my parents were overwhelmed. They went through two world wars, the Great Depression, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, why are you overwhelmed? And he basically said, because I, and Dick actually, I think he kind of said in his subtext, he said, because you're so connected, why are you like so overwhelmed in, in this world? You got so many people like to lean on. And because Mikey kind of said, hey, I'm, I feel lonely. And he's like, but you're so connected. He's like, yeah, I'm connected, but I don't know how to start a conversation. And this was from a guy who's fairly, you know, socially uh, extroverted for sure. But, but basically this idea that in our world, this idea of deep, meaningful relationships is, is one of the areas that's actually getting lost, um, which is a really sad thing, but actually can be a really exciting thing uh, in the sense that God can always take anything that we have dealt to us and redeem it. That, that what is a great felt need in this world are relationships that are actually life-giving, meaningful, and authentic uh, relationships can model empathy and vulnerability 
genuine uh, love and care for the other. And so in a world where that is something that is actually getting lost so often, that you guys are being encouraged and challenged and growing in, hey, this is how I do that, is, is a deeply meaningful thing. It'll affect you uh, just in your own life. I know, I think I told the story of Omar, who, um, you know, last spring was doing an internship in Denver and was a, was a accounting major. He was in an accounting internship, which you would kind of think is pretty dry, you know, that was credits. And I was an accounting major, so I know it's, all the stereotypes of accountants are true. But but he basically went in there to his internship. Every week was judged on like 12 things. And he came back laughing. He said, Nate, 10 of them had nothing to do with accounting. Two of them had to do with accounting. The other 10 essentially had to do with this kind of stuff that we're going to talk about here today. And leadership taught me that. And so learning how to have deep, meaningful, authentic relationships uh, is an area where really the kingdom of God can really uh, meet a felt need in our world. And when we look at the New Testament church, we look at the church in Acts, we find that they were actually drawn into the early church because of their deep sense of connection and intimacy and love for one another. And that was in a world that understood far better as a culture the idea of those kinds of relationships. And then the Christian church walked in and basically changed the whole way that even that culture understood it how much more in our world today can the truly authentic sort of relationships that are drawing close to the source of relationship itself, the Trinity, uh, model that. And so, so how do we go about that? How do we go about that? There was uh, a study done a while ago on teams, and they basically took a bunch of college teams, I think, I think they were college students maybe, and and they basically gave them an assignment, something that they were really going to be in line with in their major, something they were excited about doing, and something that kind of got their uh, energy up. And they were given this assignment, kind of like a senior project or something, and they got, like, got something that they really liked. And they had these teams, anywhere from five people up to 40 people, uh, they would do these team things, and they would put into these assignments Basically, one person that was an actor, the whole team, but one person was an actor. And the actor would just act in one of three characters. He would either act as Eeyore, you know, Gloomy Gus, Woe is Me, The World is Falling, you know, it all sucks, right? So you get the, you got low energy, low love, low excitement, low engagement. Uh, you get the one who was simply just the disengaged. So he would just put his head on the table in the middle of a meeting, right? He's just not, he's not paying attention. He's not engaged. Uh, or the antagonist, uh, the, you know, the person who's everything's a bad idea and everything's stupid and, you know, this is why, he tell you why. So even in a team of 40 people, he, they put one person in there that was like that, this one actor. And they were using this one guy, I think, most of the time. But... Every time, teams from 5 to 40, that one person would curtail the entire team. It would change the very ethos of the assignment. That when that one person was in there, it actually changed the whole sense of engagement, of excitement, of enjoyment, of what they were doing. Just that one person. But they found that there was, there was this one case that they did that actually was 
difference. Uh, there was this one team that actually broke the mold, and they couldn't figure out what was going on until they interviewed the, the actor and said, there's this one guy, I don't think he was even the head guy, he wasn't even the leader, uh, guy or gal of that team assignment. But, but whenever this actor would start trying to do his different acts in that group, this person had the ability to, to take all of the junk that the, this guy acted out, or all of the uh, boredom or woe is me kind of stuff, and sh shift it and flip it in such a way that he was able to keep the team moving forward, keep the team on an even keel, keep them going. And this one person could actually counteract uh, the Eeyore uh, type person. And what he, and the way he did that was what we're going to talk a little bit about the rest of our time here. Um, there is... Now, why are we talking about this? Real briefly, I think you're connecting the dots, but I'm kind of jumping around. As a small group leader, uh, the ability for you to, one, pursue people in meaningful relationships and to create meaningful and to connect them in that meaningful way. And from there, to actually begin to create community around your life with people that are learning to do that with one another is paramount. If you, if you not only are yourself uh, socially intelligent, but you're having to, have to teach the people in your group how to interact in a way that's helping them connect with one another. So you have to be doubly good at this. And you might say, I am not good at this. Like, I know myself, I know I'm not good at that. That's okay. Because these are not things that are like I'm intrinsically capable of. These are things that are taught and are learned and are disciplines that develop. If you say I'm not strong at that, it's like, okay, let's go to the gym and work out that muscle group a little bit. It might take you a little while. You might not be very good at it at first. That's okay. Failure is okay. Like, you've got to try. It's like, oh, that kind of sucks. And we talk about, we talk about in... In Kai Alpha, sometimes we talk about metrics of success. Now, remember that we've talked with you guys all about the idea, like, keep your identity secure in who I am in God. That is paramount. That my identity is son, daughter of God, not what I do for him. But in kind of thinking through, okay, am I doing well at fighting for my world? Am I doing a good job ministering to the people of my life? There is, there's kind of two ways of looking at it. One are internal metrics of success, um, and others are external metrics of success. And the ones that are most important are internal. Those are the ones for us to really think through. If you're Jeremiah in the Old Testament, we don't know that Jeremiah ever saw someone turn back to Yahweh because of his ministry. We do know, actually, God told him they wouldn't. Like, how would you like that for a calling? God's like, hey, I want you to be a small group leader. Everybody's going to hate you. They're going to throw you in the dungeon, which I don't know where the dungeon is here at you know, CSU, but basically they're going to like throw you in a pit. They're going to dig a pit. They're going to throw you in it. They're going to leave you there. They're going to hate your guts. And nobody is going to turn around. Nobody is going to change their mind. But you need to do it. How would you like that as a point, right? But here's the thing. God told Jeremiah, he said, if you obey, what happens to them is on them. All you can handle, all you can do is obey. That's all you can control. And that's that internal metric of success. Jeremiah could not control whether Israel turned back to God. 
He could control whether or not he stepped out and gave them the chance. He could control that. And that's what we talk about when we talk about internal metrics of success. Are you doing a good job stepping out, taking the opportunities that God gives you every day to minister and to love and to reach out and to share and to push the people in your life into deeper walks with God? Are you growing in those areas? And are you helping other people grow in those areas? Those internal metrics of success. You can't dictate whether or not someone you know, gives their life to the Lord. You can decide whether or not you give them the opportunity. Now, the external is, did they give their life to the Lord, right? That's the one we all like. That's the one we all like want and are kind of working towards. And that's not bad. That's a good thing. We should want that. If Jeremiah was like, I don't care you know, what happens to Israel. I just care that I like did my thing. That's very selfish in motivation, right? That's kind of like me-centered. And I'm just going to do my thing to what I get out of it instead of realizing his heart needed to be for Israel to have the hope and a vision and a dream of what it would be like if they came back to him. Like, they should be motivated by that. But not in the sense that what he did was good or bad based on However, we do at the same time <coughs> let the external metrics of success uh, inform us on those internal metrics. And what do I mean by that? If you go out and you're constantly trying to reach out to somebody or different people, and strike up conversations and try to like you know invite people into your life and start pursuing people and it's not going well. If it doesn't go well, that's just okay. Sometimes that just happens. That's you know you get somebody who is really running from God and they're not at that place. They're hard soil. Maybe you can help fill it a little bit, but maybe you're not going to get very far. That's okay. You know Jesus had the crowd, crowds, the multitudes walk away, um, and you're not the son of God. So. Guess what? You know, we're going to have at least as much failure as he had at that. However, at the same time, if that always happens, maybe you should start asking that question. I'm not judging myself internally like, oh, I'm a failure. I'm horrible at this. I should give up. But I should be able to say because my identity is independent, my identity is secure and who I am in the Lord, I start looking and say, okay, maybe I could be a little bit better at not being so awkward at the first interaction. Maybe I could like engage a little bit better with more questions. Maybe I should leave them alone the moment like I get them to an event and hope that they just kind of sink or swim in the community. Maybe I should be a little more hands-on. You know, you start letting the ex- in external uh, metrics. Are they engaging? Are they connecting with my life? Are they are they getting plugged in? Are they plugging into what I'm trying to do and walking out in community with them? Are are they responding to that? And we're let that inform what my internal metrics are of how I go about this. Because as we grow in, in social intelligence, uh, God can use that. He can use that. Now, he can certainly, you know, sidestep that, uh, certainly. You know, I, I know of countless, you know, examples of when, you know, somebody meets somebody and, and just the Lord does something miraculous, right? I mean, they don't care whether or not you were like real friendly to them or not. Like they're just like, what just happened in my life, right? God just met me there. And that has to do with the other part where we talked about a few minutes ago. How good are you at helping people uh, connect with your God? But in the area of how well you at con- letting people connect with you, uh, we can all grow that. I can grow in this. And I'm constantly kind of assessing how well am I doing it, letting people feel welcomed and invited and pursued in my life. So, um, let's talk through just a few things here. 
<coughs> related to that. One is um, how do we go about drawing people into our lives in a meaningful way? And that's one of them is called a concordance interaction. Um, they've done these studies uh, with people talking, just interacting. And what they have found is they've been able to, I don't know, they put electrodes, they put electrodes on everything anymore, right? But they, they put electrodes on these people as they're having these conversations. And they find that generally people in conversation um, in whatever, you know, wavelengths or, or body language or, or heart rates or all these different things that they're measuring are, are just kind of all over the place. They're not connected. They're, they look like two very different uh, squiggly patterns on a page. I have little boys. We were uh, leading Sunday school uh, for my church here this morning, and, and they were drawing. And all the little kids, just you know, they're just scribbling, right, all over the place. They don't look anything alike, right? Nobody's drawing in between the lines. Everybody's just kind of doing their own thing. Uh, but, but it kind of looked like that. The patterns were just all over the place. But they would find there was these strange moments when all of a sudden both of these patterns, you think of like a heartbeat monitor, basically their EKGs, their whole thing, everything started to sync. And it looked like the same pattern. And what they found was there are these moments in our interactions when we don't communicate it, we don't say it, we just both know we once were like this, and now we're like this. We once were disconnected. We're kind of, you know, posturing and seeing who's, you know, better, or just kind of like using you as a sounding board to what I really care about, or you know, and and we're not really even listening, and we're not really engaging. We're just kind of like thinking of the next better thing, better story. You know, anybody ever hear like Brian Regan's uh, Me Monster on YouTube? Uh, go look it up if you haven't. It's, it's really funny. But but. Um, we're kind of all over because we're not connecting in the way that we could. And all of a sudden, there's this moment where we start to sink. And there's things that influence that kind of interaction. Uh, we'll get to that here in a second. Um, creating an environment of safety. That sounds like a really funny term. But, but it's really the term that they have continually gone back to to try to define what they're finding in research. But it is, it is simply this idea. We are, we are a tribe mindset. When before cities and towns like Fort Collins, you know, when we were hunter-gatherer cultures, uh, you had all these external forces in your life, whether it was the lion or the cliff or the pl plague or the shortage of food or what might be going on around you. You have these external forces. And if we were not in a good place, that was going to make my potential survival way worse, right? I need I need you, and you need me if we're going to have a chance at, at surviving together. And so there's this sense of, even though the external is is chaotic, because the external is chaotic, I need the this to be safe. I need this to be uh, good in a place where I feel safe in this relationship. And when that relationship is a place where it feels like it's safe, um, there's this deep, meaningful connection that tends to happen in that place. And so that's what they actually found with the guy that I said a minute ago that could overcome 
the, uh, the actor's different roles, is that this guy had a unique ability intuitively in how to keep the team feeling like they were safe. And every time that this guy was either bored, it basically communicated, this is not something that I should be interested in. This is not a place to engage or give yourself over to. Because this guy apparently thinks this is boring. It's gonna, this isn't going to work. Right? Or when he was an antagonist, it was doing the same thing. Right? That's kind of, we kind of get that intuitively. Like If he was an antagonist, it was communicating, this is not a safe place. And so we need to create, in the journey of college, with all of the external stressors that are not safe, what's my future? I don't know, it's uncertain. What's my internship gonna be this year? What's my, you know, who am I gonna be dating? Who could be my spouse? You know, all these different things that are not safe, they're not certain, they're really chaotic in this season of your life, creating an environment where, hey, we are safe in the midst of this chaos, that we are gonna be a community that love each other and honor each other and care for each other and gonna fight for you and I'm gonna fight for you to have a deep meaningful relationship with my God is important. Um all right. Good leaders make you feel safe by prioritizing people first over production. That's more of a kind of a business term obviously but when we care for them, not for our agenda, to say get saved, for example, we don't care for them for the agenda to get saved, but we want them to get saved for the agenda of caring for them. You know, we want we don't care for people so that they can become a small group leader, or they become a small group leader because hopefully we cared for them, right? Like they don't get discipled and grow in their walk with God. As our agenda, our agenda is that because we care for them, because we want the best for people, if we really believe that God is the best thing, and say thing as him, but that they could ever experience in their life, then to really care for them is to say, I want you to grow in your walk with God, and I want to do it with you. If we don't do that, it's either because we don't believe it, or we're too scared to step out in it. And so we have to learn to, one, overcome that fear, and we have to own that belief really what we are saying, that Jesus is what you need, he is who you need, and that coming into relationship with him is where you're going to find the fulfillment, and the peace, and the joy, and the purpose of your life, that when we really believe that, that then we begin to fight for people to experience these deep, meaningful things, and we grow not only in how to connect people to us, but how to connect them to our God, because we realize he is who they really need. Okay. So, um, how do we go about that? A couple, couple things here. And none of this is meant to be rocket science here, but, but a couple different ways that we create what we call latent influence. Uh, and latent influence is uh, most simply, you could just say like body language or your social skill sets or those kind of things. These things that they're latent, they're not like obvious, but you know someone who is really good at listening, right? You just know it. How do you, how do you know that they're good at listening? Because you can see it in their eyes, the way that they're engaging when you're talking. Like they, they are life-giving. Why? Because they're, they're trying to pour into you. Trying, there's something about their body language even. In fact, if you guys were on the missions retreat here 
uh, here in town here a couple weeks ago, we do kind of an entertaining uh, little exercise with that where we take photos of everybody during uh, the weekend. At the end, we, we show all of your uh, photos that we secretly took while you were in session during that because it's this exercise of what are you communicating? You know, what are you communicating with your eyes, with your your body posture? Are you saying this is a safe place? This is a place to engage and to be vulnerable and to be real? Or are you saying this is a place to disconnect, to disengage, and to not let yourself be real? Right? Your body language and how, what you speak, how you speak, your tone, all that kind of stuff influences that. Um, a couple things related to that. Uh Belonging cues, they have found is, is really important. Belonging cues, basically to make a place, uh, to make a friendship, a uh, friendship that is safe, so to speak, you want to be continually communicating what they call belonging cues, which is something to say, this friendship is going to continue on. Not, there, you know, there's, especially in small group leading, especially early on, you have this group, and nobody's quite sure if they're really a group, or they're going to stay together, or if they really need each other, or what their, what your role is in their life, or, or theirs and yours. And, and so, one of the things that helps is when you start to say, man, I can't wait, I can't wait for this summer to, let's go, like, rafting. You want to go rafting this summer, it'd be so much fun. What is that? Now, what is that saying? It's basically saying, I see a future with you in it. I see a future where you and I are together. And when you say that future talk, it's not saying, I don't know if I'm going to see you ever again, right? You know, it's kind of like the difference between the first date and the fifth date. You know, first date, it's like, are we going to have another one? I don't know. There's no safety in that. But one of the things that when Lindsay and I were first starting to, well, we weren't even dating technically yet. We were, we were kind of in that limbo in between, like, hey, we went on one date, we were long distance, we are trying to figure out where the future was there. But we were just trying to get to know each other. So I would I would call her, uh, I don't know, I can't remember, she probably remember, but maybe once or twice a week we would definitely talk uh, on the phone. But the funny thing was, and I wasn't even doing this intentionally, it was just kind of subconsciously, but I would tell her, I was like, hey, I'll give you a call on Wednesday um, if you're free. And she, I didn't know anything. I was just ignorant, frankly. But she said that was the most helpful thing any guy had ever done for her. <laughs> I'm like, really? She's like, yes, because I wasn't sitting, you know, going to the gym, wondering if he's, am I gonna miss his call? Am I, you know, I'm going to see my girlfriends, but am I gonna like, you know, I? She was just like, I am so used to like not knowing that that relationship is not safe. That it gave me a sense of security to know, hey, you are gonna call me again. This isn't over. You're not gonna just kind of like, you know. Three weeks are going to go by and you're never going to talk to me again and I don't know what's happening, right? So there's a sense of safety that's critical. And that's, you know, guys, we kind of like to think that we're more macho than that, but we're not. Um, and it's not even about that. It's just the sense we need the sense of, if I'm going to be your brother, I need to know that you can lean on me and I can lean on you. And I can't know that if I don't feel like we have this, that I am something to you. So belonging cues are kind of a way of me saying, you matter to me, and I see a future with you in it for me. Um, 
Some of the ways you even do that are just your energy. Again, none of this is meant to be fake. If this is coming out of a sense of trying to perform something, it's not going to work. Uh, and they've actually shown that this is actually really true, that they used to wonder in uh, psychology that whether a smile was a smile because of cultural norms or because of neurological predispositions. And over many years and many research studies and stuff, they found that a smile is a smile because we are hardwired to smile uh, when we're happy. That is our predisposition. And so, in fact, they've, they've gone so far as to show that we are, even the best liars in the world, are actually being honest. God hardwired us to be real and to be authentic and be vulnerable at any given time. They've done these studies where they'll put spouses, it's almost scary, they put spouses in a room for five minutes and videotape them. And using micro language, basically like the little nuances, I mean frame by frame of what is being communicated. And they basically tell these spouses, like, sit in a room, five minutes, just talk. Talk about going to the grocery store after this is done, talk about what, you know, how many kids you want to have. Doesn't matter. It could be stupid, it could be profound. They don't care. Just talk for five minutes about anything. They had like an 85% accuracy rate of whether or not that couple would be married in 10 years. Simply by what was being communicated. Because what, because our hearts are constantly communicating in our faces, in our body language, in our posture, what we really think, feel, and act. So this isn't to say like, hey, you can fake this. However, you can hide it. Just as Jesus says, don't hide what I've given you under a bushel, right? Like, don't hide the truth. You can also learn to not hide the truth that's within you. I want to get to know you. I want to connect with you. I want that. And if I actually act it out, it actually reinforces that desire. And if I'm just like, yeah, whatever, dude. Cool. Yeah, I want to get to go get to know you better. Okay. Yeah. Sure. Whatever. Like, I, I may think I want to get to know that person, but if I'm just... If I'm not acting it out, it actually isn't as true. When I actually start to act something out, it becomes more real in my heart. And so that's kind of what we're talking about. Um, so have energy. Uh, invest in the exchange that is occurring. That's one of those ways that you create that those belonging cues. Invest in the exchange. Some of the best communicators I know, people that have just garner favor... I, I, they're not even the best communicators, honestly. I, I listen to them. How is it that every time I talk to somebody, they're like, "Oh, I just talked to so and so." Like, man, my life has changed from that. I'm like, what? What did that guy like? How did that happen? Like, because I, you know, I just kind of like I know different people, and I, I'm like, okay, what just happened there? But when I, what I found is some of these people are so good at not competing with what's being told, said to them. Like they're not like, oh, you have that story? Yeah, I have that, I have that story too, man. This, mine was even better, right? Like I, and they're not deflecting, but they're really listening, and then they and then they build upon what's being talked about in the other person. And so they're actually, they're actually engaging and saying, you know, I had something similar to that. Did you experience this when you went through that too? Right, they'll ask good questions. They'll, they're actually engaging. They're not trying to compete with you. They're trying 
to actually build upon where you are going. In fact, some people in my life, some of the best people that helped me really learn or think through, like, what do we need to do as a ministry, as a community, me and my life? Like, some of the best people are really good at that. I get done, I'm like, man, that was so profound. And then I'm like, I don't really know what they said. <laughs> I don't, but they were just, they were so engaging that at the end, I feel more connected to them, and I feel more clearly I understand what to do. It's a little bit of a coaching sort of thing, but it's not nearly that clinical. It's just relationally engaging in the exchange. Um, If the leader is expressing or facilitating um, close physical proximity, that helps. Not like, you know, in your in your bubble, but if you're staying close, not keeping yourself uh, away from them. Profuse amounts of eye contact, physical touch, uh, and I'm not just not talking like. You know, girls, girls have so much more capacity in this than guys do. Like girls, like Ileana has girls over all the time. I'm like walking in, and like girls are off, like laying on the couch, and she's got their head in her lap, and she's like playing with her hair. I'm like, I, you know, never, never in a million years have I ever walked into one of my staff guys' houses or with staff guys there, and like one of the dudes is just like, oh yeah, just like, you know, Brits, like you know, scratching their hair, but. And then afterwards, they're like, yeah, we're just so close. I'm like, you know, I get punched if I even... Okay, but, even, but I will say this. One of, my, one of my strongest small group experiences, I was really intentional. There were some other things going on that I don't want to get into all that, but uh, with, with some sexuality uh, confusion and stuff. But I was, I was really, really intentional with my guys to just either punch them every time I saw them, or wrestle them to the ground. For moment, like, dude, I haven't seen you for a week. Like, you know, <laughs> there he goes. You know, they're like, they're kind of scared, but they liked it. They just kept coming back, right? You know, I, mean, God, I haven't seen any in like three days, man. I like to like get to the gym before I go see him, right? You know, like we're gonna like wrestle, right? Like there's just this this thing. So physical contact is actually really, really good. Um, because what it communicates is I actually am vulnerable enough with you to actually have fun with you, to just be stupid. Like, I don't punch a stranger. I don't wrestle to the ground somebody that I don't think is comfortable with me. And me doing that communicates I'm comfortable with you. It reinforces the friendship. All right. Uh, lots of short, energetic exchanges. This one, uh, I was telling the the leadership team recently, this one uh, annoys me because I suddenly realize how bad I can be at this. But but short energetic exchanges. Do you do a monologue? Your job is not to be like the monologue of your small group community. You're not going to help create community. You're not going to help create connection to them. There are moments like this one for me right now where I get to do that, and that's just kind of the way it is. So you have to deal with it. But generally, in relationships, in relational interactions, it should be an ongoing exchange of short, energetic exchanges of conversation. No one dominating the conversation. Um, lots of questions. Um, intensive, active listening. 
I think most people kind of know that term anymore, but uh, when you're like actively listening, you're kind of asking back to them, do I hear you saying this, that kind of stuff. Uh, humor, laughter, love and laughter softens hard hearts is one of our maxims, and and we should have fun with each other, um, serving each other. So honor uh, is a huge one. Honor is is huge, and we'll actually get to more to that here uh, next weekend. But uh, okay. Yeah, I think we're going to start wrapping up there. But but what you'll find is as you are continuing to grow in, and ask good questions. Let me just reinforce that one time. Like ask good questions to everyone. Ask good questions to the people, quote-unquote, under you in your life that you're, like, ministering to. And ask good questions to your leaders. I mean, if you, if you don't know how to ask good questions to your leaders, you are not going to get very far. Because the best... The worst quote-unquote one-on-ones I have, guaranteed, just depends on how many good questions there are. And it's not because I need them to like reinforce my ego or something. There's something godly when then when we come together and we are asking each other good questions or in, interacting in that way. There's a sense of honor that I surrender to you. The worst one-on-ones I ever have are when somebody just basically sits there and says, hey, trust me, right? <laughs> And, and we'll get into one-on-ones, whether it's structured or unstructured or just life together and intentionality, uh, which I love that. But but if we're having kind of this intentional interaction and there's no good questions there, it's lame. I think it's lame. And they're, they're supposedly trying to learn from me. I'm like, this is the lame one. When do I get to go home and see my wife? Like, this is going to be, this is a waste of time. But when somebody comes up and says, hey, man, I just wrestling with this. What do you think? Man, it's like there's something about I guarantee you every time, those are the moments where I, I feel the Spirit of God moving in those moments. Those are the ones that actually, actually change. And actually, half the time, I'm coming, like, getting done with it, like, trying to write notes. Like, what did I even say? That was so good. Like, <laughs> I don't know where that came from. It's just the Spirit of God starts to flow. Why? Because when a community is honoring to one another, the freedom of God, the flow in that is so much greater because it's not about my ego, your ego, who's right, who's wrong, all that, but rather who can I serve and how can I serve each other. And so there's, there's, there's this freedom that the Spirit of God has to flow through us as we are learning to serve and honor and love each other in those ways. Okay, let's take a little break and we'll jump into the uh, second hour here in about 10 minutes. Let's get going. Okay, so, 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 couple, couple thoughts, couple announcements for today. Um, one, one announcement for today is we are doing our LTC retreat next weekend. Um, I will send out details when we get a little closer, but needless to say, uh, you should plan on getting up to uh, getting up to Essence Park by 5 p.m. Friday night. Uh, it's going to be at a church, so bring a sleeping pad, sleeping bag, uh, toiletries, something to take notes with. That's basically you know your Bible, uh, something to take notes with. That's basically all you really need. 
Uh, it's pretty straightforward, pretty uh, easy, but uh, we will we will be just at a church, uh, roughing it a little bit, but it's up in Estes. That's going to be a good time. So that will be next Friday night, 5 p.m. We will have dinner there. There is no cost. Um, so come hungry. We will be ready to go. I will send out. The address is on your syllabus, but you uh, are well. I'll probably send out another reminder. Uh, small group leaders are always invited or welcome to come to this. So if you want to drag your small group leader along, that uh, is great. If you, we really want to encourage you to try not to miss this. Try to prioritize this. I know uh, some people have situations with works and stuff. They just cannot get away with it, away from it. Uh, we do understand that. Um, you will have to listen to all the podcasts for all the sessions. So it's going to be a little bit longer of an assignment for you if you miss. Uh, and I will give you more than two weeks to, to complete all of that. But this to say, we would love to have you up there. It's just a good time. Uh, transportation. Uh, I will probably remind the cohorts to try to like talk through that as well today. But uh, try to coordinate either with your, with your friends here in the room, or make some friends and go together, uh, or talk to your cohort leader, uh, and we'll help coordinate stuff for you. We will all be going up there as well. So we need staff first so you can talk to them and be like, hey, where, how are you getting up there? IP's right. We'll get you up there. So 5 p.m. on Friday, we will be back. Uh, by 5 p.m. on Saturday, um, and maybe a little bit earlier, but but uh, we will not do LTC Sunday night. No, we'll do it all there at the retreat. So, uh, just so you're aware of of all that. Okay, uh, our next class here is on the three core values of Chi Alpha. Um, sometimes we call them three anchors, three R's. Uh, PBR is the one that we tend to use. However, I realize it is a beer. <laughs> so maybe PRV is how you say it. Um, uh, but, but basically, I just want to talk through a little bit. You know, we talk about basically social intelligence and, and as a small group leader growing in those areas. Uh, particularly that has to do with you know, brotherhood, sisterhood. But I want to also talk through, just big picture-wise, kind of our three core values, everything that we do works from, and everything that we <coughs> think through, how we assess things, how we dream about what we're trying to do and, and be as a community, tends to revolve through these three lenses. Typically, this is kind of a side point, but typically in small group leading, the, not that all three of these aren't expressed, because they should be. But the heavy emphasis is typically on um, brotherhood or sisterhood and your personal walk with God or your Devo life. Uh, that's, that's the biggest thrust of, of your time in a small group community is, hey, let's be brothers together and let's, let's grow in our walk with God together. Leadership uh, kind of adds this third component, responsibility, which is what we're going through in this class. But I want to talk through these three just for a few minutes before we go into cohort time today. And so these these three are really important to us. Um, brotherhood, sisterhood, you know, not trying to be uh, sexist, we just say brotherhood, defining both sexes, but that idea of deep, meaningful relationships. When the thing that is 
central to your life is central with someone else's and you're able to lean on each other in the pursuit of that common goal. Uh, that is that is brotherhood. Um, a personal walk with God is basically just the idea that we need to also have our own walk with God. We, If we come from Christian heritage, praise God, that's a huge blessing. You cannot lean on that. Yeah, right. right. We, we understand that. That was the thing that the the Pharisees thought, They're like, hey, we're sons of Abraham, and he, Jesus is like, I, you know, God can make sons of Abraham out of the stone here. That doesn't impress me, right? Do you, your whitewashed tombs, do you have a walk with God? Do you personally have a relationship with God? Do you personally right now have a walk with God that is worth replicating and worth modeling after and worth pursuing after? Are you growing in your walk with God? That is something that is deeply meaningful and critical. If we don't have that, what's the point? And, relation, and responsibility defines, we've, of course, we've gone over this plenty here, but it's just the idea that we need to realize that our faith is not about just us. That when we suddenly realize that our faith is about more than us, but about joining with God on mission in this world, that our faith becomes richer and deeper because it isn't about us anymore. It's about joining with God in the great rescue plan of humanity. And so we get to join in that story. Um, we need all three. We need all three. If we have two of them, if we have brotherhood and a personal walk with God, we become a holy huddle. Uh, we don't have responsibility. This is typically what happens. Holly, holly, huddle. I've never been accused of being a great speller. So we have a holy huddle. Um, holly huddle. Uh, which is more or less Israel in the Old Testament. Israel was, was they had this deep, like we are sons of Abraham, we have this deep sense of connection. They, even at times, at least externally, and sometimes truly internally, they had this walk with God. They were following after Yahweh. They had this brotherhood of, of believers in their fellowship, and they shunned the rest of the world. So they were this holy huddle that, that the world was not transformed by them even though they had the truth. And I've been in communities like this. I walked away from them deeply affected, sometimes personally, loved my time with them, uh, and nothing was ever left when when I left because we were together and we loved it and the world was not changed because no one else was invited into that. Um, if we have responsibility and a personal walk with God, but we don't have brotherhood, we basically become Elijah. You guys remember the story of Elijah on the Mount Carmel, right? Powerfully used by God. Powerfully used by God. Uh, certainly has a walk with God. Hears the voice of God. Knows it. You know, just has this deeply meaningful ministry, uh, at least externally. The external factors at some level. Uh, he definitely feels a sense of responsibility for Israel. Right? He's fighting for years to see Israel come back to God. But as soon as he hits the first hiccup, he's out. He's like, God, take my life. And what does he say? What does he say when he's going to the mountain with God, to be with God? What does he say to God? Take my life. Why? I'm the only one. I'm alone. I'm lonely. I don't have anyone to do this with. And he created this disillusionment within Elijah that God said, here, guess what? I'm going I'm to give you a buddy. <laughs> so there's this other guy, uh, Elisha, that comes along Elijah. And they start doing ministry together from there. 
but we need community. We, one, are not as impactful without it, and two, even if we are as impactful as Elijah in our life, even Elijah, at the end, at the height of his ministry, uh, is left disillusioned when the first shortcoming comes his way. Uh, If we have brotherhood and responsibility, but we don't have a personal relationship with God that is deeply rich, meaningful, and authentic, then we become legalistic like the Pharisees. Jesus said, hey, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You do everything right. You're acting right. You're moral. Uh, Pharisees were deeply moral. They're far more, uh, they, they had this belief, they had this theology that they could get Israel to do everything according to the law perfectly. For one day, the Messiah would come. That was their thought. That was their motivation. If they could just get Israel for one day to be perfect, God could flow into that. And the Messiah would show up. That was their thought. But when Jesus showed up, he's like, you're a whitewashed tomb. You look good. But there's nothing inside. And we certainly are not going to see the impact in our life. And even if we did, what's the point? If we've missed the walk with God. That is really ultimately the point of all of this. Um, so brotherhood, of course, affects these other two in deep ways. Our responsibility becomes richer because we can do it together. We're, we have this sense of, of deep community. And I was just hanging out with one of our former small group leaders two days ago, and you know he's in Denver just helping build a church with a bunch of his other uh, former small group leaders here because they love this. They love taking on responsibility. They enjoy this. They wanted to do this as a career at, just in the marketplace, but they only enjoyed it because they had each other. And I've had guys who try to do it without the brotherhood, and it never works very well. So they, in the brotherhood, they loved it. Without the brotherhood, they can't do it. And the personal walk with God becomes richer because we disciple each other. We challenge each other. We encourage each other. And this mind and love with God that we like to talk about gets richer because we are talking about what you, you know, we, we have, sometimes we'll say like, what you got? Or what have you been reading? Or what's your thought life like? Or what, you know, because what we're really saying is like, feed me and I'll feed you what I've been learning. We're going to help each other grow together. Far better than apart. Our personal walk with God, of course, affects these other ones. This is, when we do this, we grow in our walk with God in responsibility because it's in the interplay here that our walk with God on mission, we find this new aspect of our relationship with him. Our brotherhood becomes deeper because when he is the point, the, the foundation of our brotherhood has something stronger to build itself upon. And so the friendships that we can have without that walk with God are not as potentially as strong uh, as it can be when the author of life itself is the source of our life-giving relationships. And then responsibility we find is like miracle grow to, our, to my faith for the same reason that these two work together. And the same reason these two work together. Responsibility feeds that brotherhood. It gives me mission. If anybody likes Lord of the Rings, right, Frodo and, and Gamgee and all these guys, they're, they're leaning on each other. This responsibility is creating this brotherhood. And the funny thing about the Lord of the Rings is, you know, you have that moment. Um, the, these movies came out when, the movies came out when I was in college. I don't yeah. know how that dates me. Yeah, they, um, my elder... But uh, my three days, so that's the lame joke. I'm going to keep using it, though. Um, when 
when these guys, these elves, these dwarves, and these other creatures are all together, um, they they have nothing in common. They want to fight. They don't even like each other. They're technically allies, but they don't even like each other until this mission, uh, this ring, binds them together. And suddenly they find that their diversity binds them. They value each other's diversity, or their diversity before that mission divided them. Tolkien uh, was pretty genius in his thinking there, that way. All right. When we have all three of these working together, that's where we get to transformative community. That's that's the sweet spot. That's when community is really rocking, is when those those things are not independently there, but are also feeding each other. When my walk with God is feeding my brotherhood, which is feeding my responsibility, which is feeding my walk with God. Those things, when they're feeding each other in that, in that community, not just in my life, but in my community, that's where transformative community really grows. In Acts 2, 40, verse 42, I referenced this in the last class. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings and the fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers daily those who were being saved. You see all three of these. You see responsibility, right? The apostles are out there like preaching, proclaiming the good news. You see uh, brotherhood, right? This deep sense of like, hey, they're like leaning on each other. They're spending time together every evening. They're having meals together. Uh, they're, and this is, this is in a quote-unquote communal culture. So this is like, this is like even more intense than what they even understand at that time. Um, and they have this deep walk with the Lord. They're they're growing. They're going to the temple courts. Newsflash: the early followers of Jesus didn't call themselves Christians. They just saw themselves as followers of Yahweh, Jews. They still went to the temple. They just saw Jesus as the fulfillment of what they were expecting. That's a whole different conversation. Okay. Um, take a few minutes. Um, and what is your strongest and weakest anchor? So I want you on a scale of 1 to 10 to just write these. These are not going to be public knowledge. I'm not looking for you know, anything here. But, but on a scale of 1 to 10, how strong are you in these three, in these areas? Here are some basic questions. You might intuitively kind of know or sense. But work those out. And when you, after you do, uh, go on to the Google Drive that has has this PowerPoint, you're going to, uh, that it's in your Google Drive with all the other LTC material on the three core values of Chi Alpha. And on that last, on the last page here, whoa, that's big text. Okay, on the last page here, um, there's three YouTube video, uh, videos, and depending on which one is your weakest, uh, I want you to just watch that video. It goes a little more in depth on that concept. It's your weakest. We all have one. I have one. It's my weakest. So I'm not. It's not like a like a big deal here. But just want to speak a little bit more about the one that's most relevant to you right now. And so uh, you can click on uh, whichever one of those that is and watch a. I think there's you a. Like, I will. Yeah. Uh, but there's a few minutes of a video there at the end. So do that, and we're going to wrap up here in the next 10 minutes.
and then you guys go off into your cohorts. Also, while you're doing that, I should just make one announcement that I forgot. Um, <clears throat> you can keep doing this while, uh, while I say this. But uh, your exercise from two weeks ago, if you remember, is pursue one person uh, that you don't know or don't know well in the outpost. So I guess we'll talk about that in the, your cohort time here just a little bit. Uh, your <coughs> exercise for this week um, is going to be do something with your small group community um, to help get them together and spend time as a community. And ideally, you're trying to create a, a certain level of intentionality, whether you do that organically or whether you do that uh, with what you do. But plan, if, you, if there's two of you in the same small group, you can plan it together. Uh, but plan something, get with your small group leader and plan something, a community activity, uh, to get your small group community together. And we'll exercise some of those latent influence type principles in how do you get community to bond together. As a small group leader, you cannot create community, but you can create the context for it to grow. And so it's important for you to also learn not just how to get people together in the same space, but how to create an intentional time. Either create a memory, uh, go go charming, or go you know, rock climbing, or do something that's, that's fun, but also is helping people connect with one another in the process. Help them uh, connect more with you and with each other uh, in that way. So that's your assignment for this next uh, for this next week. And, and you can get with your small group leader. If you have to do it next week because it's just planning and stuff like that, that's okay. Uh, but that's, that is your assignment for this week.